Psalm 133. How good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity. It is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, for there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. Good morning, church. Good morning, church. Let's wake up a little bit. Rise up, O you sleeper, awake. Now, who here has read the book or is familiar with the book Life Together by Dietrich Bonhoeffer? I see a few hands. This was a book I was introduced to uh, during college and actually became pretty transformative for me. At the time, there was a quote that I underlined and then I highlighted. Um, and I went back into the book um, this past week and saw it there. Let him who cannot be alone be aware of community. Let him who is not in community beware of being alone. Each by itself has profound perils and pitfalls. One who wants fellowship without solitude plunges into the void of words and feelings. And one who seeks solitude without fellowship perishes in the abyss of vanity, self-infatuation, and despair. If someone can't stand being alone, community will not solve their loneliness. And if somebody isn't embedded in community, their aloneness is amplified. Wanting community without time alone overestimates the sufficiency of community. Wanting solitude without companionship leads to despair. See, Bonhoeffer isn't simply writing about companionship or about any community. He's talking about life together in the church. And the two relational diseases that a person can bring into the church. Wanting the church to meet your needs without relying on God and seeking him in quiet and solitude. That person can fall into the trap of what he calls the dream of community, where a person becomes fixated on their own expectations and desires, which eventually leads to disappointment and dissatisfaction and conflict because the reality is that humans are imperfect. And we have different perspectives that clash with this idealized dream. We all have different idealized dreams. Wanting God to meet your need without relying on the church or doing the hard work of forging relationships. I mean, more obviously, this person will grow more and more to the point where the Christian vision of being blessed to be a blessing recedes into the background. Did you know that becoming a Christian is synonymous with becoming a member of the church? Becoming a Christian is synonymous. It's the same thing as becoming a member of the invisible church. If you've said yes to Jesus, you have said yes to his church. This is your identity. This is one 
of membership and belonging in Christ, there's something deeply spiritual going on when you say yes to Jesus. In the New Testament, we learn that Christ is the head of the church and that Christ calls men and women to be priests in that church. Practically, in our denomination, we have elders and deacons, but we also affirm the priesthood of all believers. So look around and see the priests among you. Look in the mirror and see a priest looking back at you. We organize ourselves individually and in shared leadership with other churches. We place a value on the visible church, on belonging and existing in a community of faith. Though Christians disagree over things, we seek unity. Practically, we submit ourselves to the work of the Spirit among us because we believe that the, the Spirit works through our discernment. That is faith in God at work through community. Membership of the church invisible is a matter of fact. Membership in the church visible and active participation, that seeking of unity, is what we're called to do. And if we consider Bonhoeffer's plea, you know, I, I was thinking about it, does Bonhoeffer throw the gauntlet down about this is real Christian community, or does he just really see God throwing the gauntlet down in scripture and, and name that? I think he, he names the gauntlet that God throws down in terms of the importance of community. It's really important, it's vital, but it's really hard. I mean, a hint is where, how this passage starts. How good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity. When they live together in unity, it sounds like an occasion <laughs> that doesn't happen all the time. Um, we begin with a phrase that I'm sure parents every day wake up saying to each other, how good and pleasant it is when siblings live together in unity. I mean, can't you just imagine it? As parents wake up, they exchange a knowing glance, it's morning time, back to life in our utopian bliss. A time when our children will emerge, perfectly harmonious. Their hair is already combed, clad in matching pajamas, they're assembling breakfast without a squabble. What's that? Is that a peep? They're probably harmonizing to amazing grace downstairs. Well, let's go downstairs. Let's toast a new day with orange juice with that table they've already set. Only when they come downstairs, they see something else. Not the picture of unity they'd imagined. Only one of their three children is still wearing their pajamas. The other are just in their underwear. They're staging a pillow fort fight. It's 6 a.m. and why is Gabby's dollhouse so loud? Pillows soar through the air. Laughter, or is that squabbles? Cereal bowl topples in the midst of what looks like a little bit of a rivalry. Those parents just read this passage last night and their faces melt into, well, maybe more of an amused disbelief. You know, maybe unity sometimes requires this kind of early morning chaos. I don't know. Now, I don't know about you, but I grew up in a perfect family. Never fought once with my siblings. And that's why I'm a pastor now. I'm joking. <laughs> I think I can confidently say that we know what it is to fight with siblings. We see it in the Bible, siblings fighting all the time. The first story in the Bible about siblings fighting, the story of Cain and Abel, 
ends in a murder. Joseph and his brothers, it's very similar. Joseph is sold into slavery because of jealousy and envy. Even famous figures like Moses and David and Jesus even had problems with their siblings. We learn that Jesus's brothers misunderstood him and thought he was crazy. There are challenges to unity. Now, I know that the, the siblings and the brothers here, it doesn't refer necessarily just to childhood, but let's consider the challenges of sibling relationships in childhood. What people have working against them when we imagine this picture of brothers or siblings dwelling together in unity. First, there can be clashes of personality. People have different interests and temperaments. You imagine it on movie night. I want an action movie. No, I want a comedy movie. Age differences can make it hard when your parents say, just find something that you mutually agree on to do together. And then there's jealousy and resentment. When there's toys and space and parents, these resources that are not inexhaustible. And then personal space, boundaries. What happens when your sister borrows your clothes without asking? Sometimes parents unintentionally compare them uh, to one another, siblings to one another. Um, one getting great grades can make another feel inadequate. And then family dynamics play a role. Um, patterns of conflict resolution or tension among parents can shape how siblings relate to each other. I'm so fascinated by that topic of, of intergenerational patterns, how they get transmitted from one generation to the next. What about issues of roles within families when you label one the responsible one and the other the troublemaker? <laughs> uh, whoever said being an, a kid was easy. Whoever said being a sibling was easy. Living with siblings usually means fighting and arguments. Maybe not constantly, but they happen. Most of us adults are just glad that we got out of childhood alive. But adult sibling relationships can be tough too. You know, the, the natural consequence of all this, if we want to sing how wonderful, how good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity, is that we can't just rely on our natural tendencies Otherwise, things will end up in one big fight. Um, and we won't have to renew our Xfinity to satisfy our pension for drama because we have our own family feud. Creating a community where people live together, like Psalm 133, is a big challenge for Christians. It needs a lot of effort and attention, and it's certainly easier said than done. Eugene Peterson names two um, additional challenges for community and life within the church. The first, he says, dealing with people as problems to solve is simpler than engaging in community, right? If you can isolate someone and, and provide professional advice, things are easier for that person. But if that becomes a habit of treating people as problems to solve, maybe it's just a way of avoiding community. Another way, he says, is that sometimes we turn the church into an institution. 
people are treated based on their roles, not on relationships. I mean, if our goal is to attract as many people as possible, we create structures to achieve those goals. Organizationally, we've planned, and our goals become more important than community. The church becomes less about people and more about the collective contribution they make to the ends that they name. Am I Kyle or am I pastor? Um, you know, as we plunge deeper into this psalm, the picture isn't one of discord. The picture isn't one of disharmony. Actually, the picture is one of unity and harmony, and I want you to consider that. But if you're like me, my defenses immediately arise um, because it also feels too good to be true. Right? It almost feels unreal or idealistic or almost utopian, pie in the sky. You know, I think that this passage has an answer for that as well, and we'll get there. At the center of this psalm, and I want you to read that with me in verses 2 and 3, there are two images we have. When you're reading, recall, when you're reading in Hebrew poetry um, or ancient poetry more broadly, the, the center of a poem, the key has, there's usually a chiastic structure, which means the center of the poem says something about the significance of all the poetry. So it's not the first line, like a thesis statement that has the, the, the heart or the meat. It's not the last line. It's actually somewhere right in the middle. It, it speaks to the logic of the whole. So what it tells us to do is imagine God's people unified in verse 2. It's like, precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard down upon the collar of his robes. When God's people are unified, like in verse 3, it is as if the dew on Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. Unity, as it pictures it, is like oil on the skin. It's like Mount Zion being covered in morning dew. I mean, at first, you might be wondering to yourself what these images mean. You may be wondering what they have in common and why they're being used to help us imagine unity. I admit that these images are, are a little bit cryptic, even esoteric, um, but perhaps we can unpack them a little bit. The first simile, so it's a simile being described as oil poured on the head. Now in the Old Testament, anointing was a practice, um, and I think that's the practice that's being described here. Um, it involved a ritual where, where oil was used to consecrate individuals for sacred roles priests, kings, prophets were anointed. And oil, it symbolized the preparation and dedication of that individual for God's purposes. It's endowing them with God's authority, God's um, blessing. Now, I think that that's the picture we have here. And, and actually, when we talk about oil running down onto the collar of the robes. That's an image that we actually get in Exodus as well when we're talking about the, the anointing of priests. Um, but how does that speak to unity? I wonder what you think. When I was thinking about it, three connections came to mind. The first is this. Um, I mean, during an anointing, the nation of Israel gathered. Um, the events brought the people together. And it was evocative. I mean, the oil was mixed thickly with spices, and you could smell it. And the people 
were gathered, they're generally optimistic about the leadership of the individual, the potential, and so that's the first relationship to unity. Secondly, we can imagine the unity of God's purposes and human purposes. I mean, in an in a, when someone was anointed, they were God-ordained to a specific role, and it was a moment where God's blessing was poured out on them. And so their life was nested now under God's purposes. And so you see the unity of God's purposes and human purposes come together. Um, the third thing I thought of, the, it talks about the individual, like Aaron or the head or the beard. And then it talked about the robes, both having oil poured on them. I mean, in some ways, people can be different, like a person in a robe, um, but they still come together. They come together like a priest in his robes, both receiving oil. They're like a community where God's blessings are for everyone, not just the few. Now, let's hold that. Hold that thought. Three ideas about unity in this picture of oil in anointing. The second image we get is an analogy of dew. Right, where God pe God's people are unified in verse three, it is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. Now this image describes Mount Zion, with, or Mount uh, Hermon. So that's Israel's tallest mountain. And, and it's famous, and it, this is very common in the Old Testament to read Mount Hermon and associate it with lush, verdant, beautiful gardens, greenery. It also had heavy dew. Um, it literally cloud mist. It's a major source of vegetation in the, the Middle East uh, for um, especially parts of the year where there wasn't a lot of rainfall. Now, it's a picture of not only mist, it's a picture of what the mist is doing. So if you think about Hermon, Mount Hermon, I mean, you think about the lush, you think about the beauty, you think about the greenery, you think that this is being sustained by the dew. This water is uh, helping to keep the plants alive and to keep them growing. I mean, now we're asking, being asked to imagine that same dew, that same source of life on the mountains of Zion. Zion, a word for Jerusalem. Um, this holy city of God, this would-be city of God. Um, this is written by David before the temple was erected there. Um, now, it's poetry, and so I want to say this with some humility, but, but the, the language isn't totally clear. And you'll, you'll see different translations um, among modern versions. And I think that the ESV, based on my understanding, gets it a little closer. It says, it's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountain of Zion, the mountains plural, of Zion. If that's, how we're, uh, if that's how we're translating this, it's saying even the smallest mountains around this holy city get the same dew as the tallest of mountains. It is a picture of the gift of water and life poured out indiscriminately. Um, both high and low places enjoy the same dew. Now, this is poetry, which means that interpreting metaphors, similes, and other words, um, it doesn't have the same authority over it that, that we might bring to when we're interpreting the letters of Paul. 
Our confidence and interpretation tracks with genre. That being said, I'd like, I'd like for you to go with me where my interpretive mind goes, and I wonder if we can unify these pictures, um, unify these pictures of unity. Um, I want you to replace in your mind these two images, the oil and the dew, with perhaps what stands behind them, priesthood and blessing. Priesthood for the oil and blessing for the dew. I'll propose that these images actually help us out a little bit as well in helping us to know what is at stake in realizing a community where brothers dwell together in unity. So the first image is priesthood. Um, this recalls the, the anointing of Aaron. The Psalms written by David, um, who was anointed as well in a private venue. But from the moment that these men were anointed, moving onward, moving forward, their place in the community was forever changed. That's what anointing does. Um, their anointing shaped their callings and their identities. It's, it almost gave them a commission to, to set forth, now go do this. Um, if you want a community unified, perhaps this is saying, well, live into your priestly calling. Be priests, a priesthood of all believers to one another. Now, it's been a little over two years, um, but I still think back on my ordination. Um, I found my ordination to be really meaningful. Um, I remember the various charges I got. One was to, to love the Bible, to love people, and to love God. And I remember Paul um, Brink extrapolating on how I was now a father to the congregation. But not only was I a father, I was a brother. And not only was I a brother, I was a son. It was all really moving, and I think it, it will forever change the way I think about my relationship among God's people. Um, but priesthood, I mean, is that just an image for me? There are ways I think that the Catholic Church better understands the role of a priest as an intermediary between a person and God than the Protestant Church does. Um, there's a way in which God intends to reveal himself in human relationships. God wants us to, to, God wants us to help one another to see him to know him, to trust him. I mean, the danger in all this is that the priest gets distanced from the work of the congregation and the people of God, and the priest becomes something uniquely functional. For example, to hear confessions. The fatherly um, identity of the priest is emphasized. I mean, what the Protestant church emphasizes better than the Catholic church, in my opinion, is the priesthood of all believers. As in, we are all sheep in one another's pastors. I mean, look around, We're, we are a bunch of shepherds and the people in the pews around you are the sheep in your pasture, which means you've got a duty to care for the people around you and act with, with selfless um, interest in, in, their, in their good. Um, even a pastor like me is still a son so long as the congregation images the fatherly heart of God in my life, which I think you're doing a great job at, by the way. Um, God has entrusted everyone around you to your care. So you've been given a solemn task of, of, of helping people to see the face of God, period. So look around you. You don't share that task with anyone. You do, but you also, that's your, you've been commissioned. 
um, in the New Testament, anointing, the significance of it evolves, right? Instead of um, a literal anointing um, with oil, we see that the Holy Spirit pours himself out on all believers. Um, not just some, it, there's spiritual empowerment and consecration to, to holiness as part of Christian community. Um, through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, if you believe in Jesus, you are a member of his church, which means you are consecrated to represent God. And I wish you could all go through an ordination ceremony uh, service like I did, so you could hear yourself being commissioned. But if this is as good as you'll ever get, I, I want you to take it seriously, that that's part of your identity and calling to help shepherd the people of God. Cain asked God, am I my brother's keeper? You know, scripture doesn't provide an answer for that, but it is an ironic question given that he just murdered his brother. Your priesthood means that you are a brother keeper. You are a brother and sister keeper, which means that you, um, you have a role in caring for the people around us and the people that will be part of us as well, um, which means humility is really important. It means that in relationships, we apologize. Even if we only did this much, um, it means that we have to allow ourselves to be reconciled. And it means that even when that's not fully possible, we have to be willing to take steps in that direction. Your job, my job as a priest is to imitate God and to help one another see the face of God and the actions that we take. Now the second image here, this morning dew, is an image of blessing. And actually it's reiterated in the last line of our poem, right? The, or, or in the Psalm. For there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. I mean, there's a strong emphasis on God's action here. For there the Lord bestows his blessing. That's the action, bestowing blessing. And he gives what only belongs to him, which is eternal life. I mean, this reinforces another point of the psalm, this emphasize, and we miss it a little bit in our English translation, but there are, there's a reiteration. It's almost like a drumbeat, three times right in a row, the language yarad coming down, coming down on Aaron's beard, running down or coming down, coming down on the collar of his robes, coming down or falling on Mount Zion, Yarad, Yarad, Yarad. The Psalm uses the exact same three words in repetition to make a point. And here's what I think it is. I mean, in Hebrew cosmology, God was up, heaven was up, the rains came from the heavens, Oil pours down from above. These things coming down as active participles, right? Presuming God's blessing comes down on us. It's coming down, right? As a participle, it's, it's this ongoing action. It keeps coming down on us. In short, true unity, true unity like all things comes from above, right? Unity like, like these good things come from above. 
It's given more than planned, a blessing more than an accomplishment. It's a gift. Unity is a gift. Now, when Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this, he said, the person who loves their dream of community will destroy community. But the person who around them, who loves the people around them, will create community. I think he was expressing the idea that genuine and healthy community is not built around idealism or notions of personal aspirations of what we want it to be. If somebody's primarily focused on their ideal vision of what community should be, I mean, it, that's the object of their desire, that fixation on that expectation, um, which leads to disappointment. And, and it leads to conflict because humans differ radically when it comes to their ideal dream. On the other hand, if someone genuinely cares for and loves individuals who make up the community, I mean, they value the person for who they are. They're after the other person's good. I mean, this is a priestly posture, is it not? The posture that fosters a willingness to work in spite of differences. When people prioritize relationships and supporting each other, it creates an environment where, where community is possible. Now, one thing that this, this, um, this psalm points to, but doesn't name explicitly, is this giving and giving and giving of God's blessing. I mean, one of the things that God gives us is the thing that unifies us. I want you to take seriously, I mean, the words that when you trust in Christ, you become in Christ. I mean, there's a deep spiritual movement that happens in becoming a Christian, where, where our associations, our, our identity is decentered and recentered in Christ. Um, I mean, what that means practically is that Christ is the center of the community that we build. I mean, when we're said, okay, it's not idealistic notions, that's not at the center of what we do. I mean, it's Christ, it's the worship of Christ, it's, it's the, the living out of, of the, the duties and the identity that God, uh, that Christ intended for the church to, to, to live into. I mean. The, the church is Christ's design, right? Jesus designed the church. And Jesus sits at the center of the church. So belonging to that means we're entering into something that's bigger than what we self-define. Actually, it's defined before we even get here. Now, as we um, bring our reflections to a close, I mean, we've we've looked at some of the intricacies of community dynamics. I hope that the, the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer echo in our minds. They, 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 they caution us against fixating on, I mean, community as the end, um, idealistic visions of community as the end. Um, and, they, and, and there's a calling instead that I think comes from this passage and this, this image of healthy unity that urges us to cultivate love and concern for one another as priests for one another. That's, that's a necessary prerequisite for unity. Um, unity is not just a theoretical concept. It's, it's a lived reality with challenges and blessings. So just as anointing oil consecrates people for specific tasks, 
I, 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 I know not all of us are going to get it, but I, I do want you to take seriously that, that you have been anointed and consecrated for this task of, of communal priesthood centered in Christ. And I also want you to, to draw from this image of dew that, that God is indiscriminate, right? He, there, there's a unity that comes from his blessings that pour out on all of us, among us. Um, not always easy, never easy, but it's vital to our faith. We can't do it without each other. I think it's so deep, um, but so simple, um, right? That we're blessed to be a blessing, that that's who we are in Christ, that we are blessed. We receive God's gifts to us, whether we stand tall like the mount, uh, mountain north of Israel, Mount Hermon, um, or whether we stand small like the, the mountains surrounding Jerusalem. Um, we are blessed to be a blessing. And Jesus, the, the ultimate anointed one, I mean, bestows blessing on us um, through his life, through his death, through his resurrection. He provides all that we need so that we can be unified together in Christ, imaging his sacrificial love to one another. Um, now, this is... I learned in seminary to give a big idea, and this is a terrible big idea, but here it is. It's in membership to Jesus's community that we reflect God's love that embodies the unity he desires for his people. Let's pray. Um, God, it is good to be disabused of, of notions, and it is good to be recentered and reminded of what you call us to. Um, you call us to a vital relationship with the people of God. You call us to not make that the periphery of our lives, but actually to build our lives within and into the church, um, like a vine growing up a tree. I pray that if we feel disconnected, um, I pray that we would take a step closer to other people. And I pray that if we are feeling um, reasons to separate ourselves from community, that, that you would help us to, to work through those reasons um, and submit to you what we need to so that we can, um, yeah, we can have that vital relationship with, with the church, as, with you at the center of the church. Um, we pray all this um, with gratitude and thanksgiving in Christ's name. Amen.